really was the perfect week to have landed on Psalm 19 as we slowly chip away, starting at Psalm 1, and Lord willing, eventually we'll get through all 150 Psalms. I don't know how many years it'll take. We obviously, uh, we, we hit about 10 of them last summer, and then we're jumping into a handful more now, and we'll see if we do 10 to 15 a year, whether we'll get through 150 in 10 to 15 years. But uh, alas, we will wait for that day. But today we landed on Psalm 19. And again, it is the perfect week to have landed on Psalm 19. Uh, if you went on the internet this week or watched TV, you probably saw the first pictures that were released to the public of the James Webb Space Telescope. After more than 20 years of design and manufacturing, after over 10 billion dollars, this telescope is now sending back pictures of the most detailed and far-reaching images in deep space that we have ever seen. And so you can see one of them, the projectors don't quite do it justice, it's pretty cool. But this added a sweet time of study to my week in more ways than one, because any time I went on the internet, I, you know, someone would tweet that picture and say, the heavens declare the glory of God which is Psalm 19.1. That's where we are this morning. And it also was a good reminder that every time I went on Twitter, I should be working on the sermon, Psalm 19. Uh, and so it just felt like a great, uh, joyous time for me this week to be looking at images like that that are beyond my comprehension for more ways than one, not because they are actually beyond our comprehension, but I just don't understand space and technology. But again... We think of those words, and again, maybe it's just the people I follow on Twitter, but there's this refrain all week, the heavens declare the glory of God. The unfathomable expanse of the universe declares God's immense glory. And so it's worth pausing, I think, here and asking the question, what do I even mean by that statement? And less than what do I mean, what does David mean, who composed this psalm so long ago what does it mean for something to declare god's glory it's a good question to ask what does it mean for something to declare god's glory we use the word glory a lot you've probably heard it many times in our call to worship this morning worthy are you our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power the first song that we sung, we sang these words, glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given. The second song, his glories now we sing. He died and rose on high. The third song we sang, your beauty and glory are endless. And this banner that lives up here, we exist to glorify God. And in every prayer that's been prayed, in every phrase that's been uttered we've talked about God's glory so far this morning and that wasn't like a strategic move like let's find all the songs with glory in it obviously we pick our songs based on the theme of the service and things like that but there wasn't an intentional move to say let's make sure the word glory is in everything we do it's just how we talk it is why we were created it's why we exist but still it's worth pausing and thinking how do we answer that question how do we answer the question, what is glory? It's a hard question to answer because more than a simple definition is the word, uh, the word glory. You can't really summarize it in a sentence. But Matt Papa, who 
is a songwriter. He wrote a lot of the songs that we sing here. He wrote a great book called Look and Live, and he attempts to give at least a starting point or a working definition of what glory is. He describes glory as the outshining of internal excellence. Okay, the outshining of internal excellence. Again, that's only capturing one facet of what glory is, but still, it's a facet worth paying attention to. The outshining of internal excellence. So you might think of Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello, Michael Jordan playing basketball, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, Tom Brady throwing a perfect spiral. Matt Papa talks about how in a very small sense, when you watch someone do not just something that they've practiced a lot, not just something that they're good at, but something that they seem intrinsically wired to do, you might say, in a, again, a very small sense, you are seeing their glory. You're seeing the outshining of their internal excellence. But human glory, as, as grand as those examples I gave you are, are incomparable to God's glory. And God's glory is what Psalm 19 is about. And so I invite you this morning to take a step with me, one step maybe, down an endless road of considering what God's glory is. And I want to encourage you that even if we grasp just a minutia of God's glory, it will change us from the inside out. It is life-changing. So my prayer is that as we consider God's glory declared in his amazing creation, as we see God's glory disclosed in his perfect revelation, that it would lead us to have a far bigger view of God and in turn allow us the, the permission to have a much smaller view of ourselves. And if we're honest with all of that, should lead us to humble confession. That is the beautiful and I believe life-changing message of Psalm 19. Now, if I had to summarize Psalm 19 in one sentence or one big idea, I would try it, I think, like this. Beholding the glory of God results in God-glorifying godliness. It's a bit of a tongue twister. I read it slow, so it didn't feel that way, but a little faster. Beholding the glory of God results in God-glorifying godliness. Okay, the alliteration is powerful this morning. So, uh, but it, every word there matters because I think uh, as we look through Psalm 19, the way it starts and the way it ends, it starts with God's glory and it ends with a God-glorifying life. That matters as we consider what the big idea of Psalm 19 is. Beholding the glory of God results in God-glorifying godliness. You'll find that big idea in your bulletin as well as uh, our sermon points that we'll be working through as we go through Psalm 19. And so would you, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you'd like to borrow one, we have Bibles over on the table over there. Feel free to pop up and go grab one. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that Bible that you borrow. Uh, that is our gift to you. And uh, you're more than welcome to grab one on the way out, again, if you uh, don't have a Bible. But yes, if you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm uh, chapter 19. Now, Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible, so it's your best chance of just taking a stab and getting it. If you just crack the Bible open halfway, lean a little bit to the front cover, you should find the book of Psalms. And we're in chapter 19. That is the big numbers that we see in our Bibles. And so you can go to chapter 19, and then uh, I'll be reading the whole thing for us this morning. Once you have found it, would you stand with me as I read God's holy word? 
And as I read, I want, or as you're finding it and standing, I want to tell you, C.S. Lewis described Psalm 19 as the greatest poem in the Psalter, that is all the Psalms, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. It's quite a claim from quite an author. The greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. But that is high praise. It's not as high praise as the truth, which is this is God's word for us today. And so if you believe that to be true, when I finish reading, I will say that this is God's word. And again, if you believe that, would you say, thanks be to God. Let's hear God's word from Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. But the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. We'll see this psalm is broken down for us very structurally. There's three sections to the psalm. We'll see creation. Uh, We'll see God's word, and then we'll see this response of confession and godliness. So our first section is composed of the first six verses that you'll see in your Bible, verses 1 to 6. And that section we'll consider under this bracket, God's glory is declared in his amazing creation. God's glory is declared in his amazing creation. Now whether we're talking about a painting or sculpture or music or poetry or anything created, art is made for something. Maybe this is something you've thought about. Maybe this is something you haven't thought about. But art is created to display beauty in some way, shape, or form, or to display a message in some way, shape, or form. It's meant to reflect something. Art doesn't exist for its own sake. Uh, It doesn't create itself. Art is made for something. There is a purpose behind art. Art often has multiple motives. Many people create art for the sake of their own glory. They write songs to become famous. 
Other times, we, we might look at artists who create simply to create. They want to, to create something beautiful. They, they want to display beauty. Many who create art or create anything dedicate their art to those who inspired them. Right? It's why there's thank you speeches at award shows. And it's why uh, people put dedications at the front of books. And, and people want to, to, to dedicate their art to someone or something. And, and plenty of art is meant to be a mirror of other beauty. We think of love songs. It's meant to be a mirror. It's meant to kind of capture love. We think of a landscape painting. It, it's, it is beautiful in and of itself, but it's meant to mirror the landscape that it was inspired by. And as we consider art, we can think of many times throughout history where artists create what they do to glorify God. Johann Sebastian Bach wrote the letters S-D-G, at the bottom of his compositions. Now, SDG are not his initials. SDG stands for Soli Deo Gloria, a Latin phrase meaning for the glory of God alone. That was the, the heart behind his compositions. He wanted to create beautiful music for the glory of God. And I say all this to just kind of lay the foundation for us to think about how art, how creating something communicates something. That is what it does, and that is exactly what verse 1 highlights. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. David is using art, poetry. It's a song, right, to the choir master. It's a song meant to be sung. He's using a poetic art form to, to talk about God's own poetic art form, which is his creation. And we see, we could spend all day, honestly, looking at the precision and nuance and poetic devices that David is using in Psalm 19 to convey beauty about beauty. But look at verse 1. We'll, we'll, we'll go slow through a couple here, and then and I think you'll, you'll, you'll catch where we're going. We see in verse 1 two parallel statements. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, David isn't simply saying the same thing twice for emphasis. There are lots of times in the Bible where, you know, repetition does emphasize something. Uh, and there is an emphasis here, but he doesn't say the exact same thing twice. If he did, he would be saying, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above declares the glory of God. Right? So he's not, it's not quite perfectly parallel, but David is making a point here in the differences, what we can see. If you look at the symmetry, there's subjects. He's talking about the heavens, and then he's talking about, in the second line, the sky above. So the heavens, the sky above. Now those words would, uh, should trigger even our own ears and certainly would trigger the ears of the original audience, those who would be familiar with the Old Testament, to the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis 1, 6, uh, it talks about the expanse. That's the, the same word that we're seeing here for the sky above. That proclaims his handiwork. So those are the subjects. The heavens, the sky above, language from Genesis 1. Then we see the verbs, declare and proclaim. And then we see what do the heavens and what do the sky above or the expanse proclaim or declare? Well, they proclaim the glory of God. And they proclaim his handiwork. So David is saying that God's handiwork, more than just one thing, all that God has created, again, taking us back to Genesis 1, thinking of his handiwork, which is all things that he has created, proclaims his glory. And so just as when we see a beautiful piece of art, we might ask, wow, who painted that? 
Right? Or we hear a beautiful, amazing song, we'd say, wow, who, who performed that or who, who wrote that? That makes sense to us. But we should also, when we see photos of the vast universe, when we, we see God's beauty in creation, when we see the, the expanse of the sky over an ocean, it should elicit the same response, should elicit the same question, who made that? Created things communicate something. They don't simply exist. They communicate something. And that's what David is saying in this first verse here. That for the heavens to declare the glory of God, for the skies above to proclaim his handiwork, he is saying that creation declares God's glory. That's obvious. I know you're seeing that. But that is the outshining of God's internal excellence. And so David goes on in verse 2 with another similar uh, kind of structure. He, He uses another parallel statement. He says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So we see day to day, we see night to night, we see pours out, we see reveals, and then we see speech and knowledge. David is personifying the revelation of God, or how God has revealed himself to be. It's almost like David then, after these first two verses, which cast a pretty big vision for the heavens, declaring the glory of God, the sky, the expanse above, proclaims his handiwork, Right, day to day, so day pours out speech, it communicates something, night to night, you know, reveals knowledge, so there's, there's communication happening here, but then David, like, takes a pause, he's like, I might have lost you in the metaphorical personification that's going on, verse 3, it says, there, vo- uh, there is no speech, like, no literal speech, there is no speech, uh, there are, no, nor are there words whose voice is not heard, so he kind of takes this pause, as if he's saying, before I get ahead of myself, the heavens, the sky, day and night don't literally speak, but feels like a bit of a paradox in verse 4. He says, they do say something. Verse 4, it says, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So I think David is, is playing with that tension of creation communicates something. And then he's like, well, it doesn't actually say something. But I mean, it does say something. So it's kind of, I think that's how those, those, these, you can kind of play with these verses on verse 3 and 4. But it's amazing to think about creation in those terms. That they don't, it doesn't literally speak, but it does communicate something. And it communicates something big. It communicates the glory of God. A voice that goes out through all the earth. It's no whisper, that's a shout. And David goes on to give an example of how God's glory is displayed in his creation or in his handiwork. For us today, in 2022, we have the James Webb Space Telescope, David is working with a more primitive instrument, which is the King David Earth Telescope, his eyeballs. And so what he talks about when he gives an example of how the heavens declare the glory of God, he doesn't show a picture on the screen of, you know, galaxies far, far away. He talks about the biggest, brightest thing in the sky, and that is the sun. And so that's what David gets into. As we look at verses, uh, the second half of verse 4 through verse 6, it says, In them, that is the heavens, the, the sky, day and night, He has set a tent for the sun. It's as if the heavens, the sky, is a tent where the sun lives. So he talks about the sun like it's this little thing. I made a tent for the sun, you know. Uh, Which comes out, the sun, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. So again, David is using a poetic device here. Uh, if you remember English class, this is a simile. There's a like or an as. And so he's, he's, he's talking about how the sun is 
it's like a groom on his wedding day. He's coming out to get his bride. There's anticipation. There is excitement. And it's like a strong man or a great athlete who runs a race and doesn't quit. Saying the sun comes out each day with anticipation and excitement and never fails to finish its race across the sky. It's cool imagery to think about. And it, it, it warrants us pausing to think, when was the last time you considered how glorious and honestly big God's creation is? Let's start with the sun. We'll start with what David gave us. The sun is uh, a comparably small star uh, in the grand scheme of our universe, but it still is no slouch. Uh, it is over 100 times wider than the earth. Its volume could fit well over a million earths. If it were to get slightly off kilter, uh, too close, too far away, we'd either burn to death or freeze to death. Right? We can harness the sun's rays for energy. Of course, it's a light source. It's a heat source for us. But we can't control the sun. Uh, and if you have a complexion like me, you know you can't stand outside for too long without this small, before this small star, which is 152 million kilometers away, before it burns you. That's crazy. Next time you go outside, today might not be the perfect day uh, to feel it with the clouds, but the next time you feel the sun, the hot sun, think about that. That the sun that you feel on your face that is scorching your back, God built a tent for it. Every day it comes up, goes down. It's amazing to think about. The sun is overwhelming to us, but it is not overwhelming to God. He made the sun. He made the, the metaphorical tent that it lives in. We, as we grow, we build uh, houses for dolls. We build houses for birds. We love building things out of Lego. As we grow into adults, we build homes. We build bridges. We build skyscrapers. Not personally. I've never built a bridge or a skyscraper but, or, or a home. Uh, but we, as humanity, build these things. And the greatest minds throughout, and, and all of the knowledge we've gained throughout all of human history, and billions and billions of dollars, amazingly, humans have built something so intricate, so precise, so powerful, that it can see really far away. That's the telescope. And that is amazing. It is truly remarkable. But that's, it's like that's the best we can do. That, that's what displays our glory. It's pretty amazing. But do you know what is far more amazing than that? Is God. He made everything. God's glory, his immense worth and greatness, it, it's on display in creation. That is the God we worship. He is the creator and sustainer. I say those words a lot. You probably say those words a lot. But think about those words. He is the creator. Right? sustainer how does that sun not you know get too close get too far away god is big and when we look at the observable world around us we are seeing the outshining of god's internal excellence we are in part even in a small way seeing his glory and so we'll see that the point of psalm 19 doesn't end there it's not just about beholding God's glory. It does lead us somewhere. But let's not rush that point. Let's not rush into uh, the implications of what this means. God's amazing creation declares his glory. It, it declares his worth and his creativity. 
His handiwork is on display for all of us to see. But, but this demands a very practical application, which is not the direct point of Psalm 19, but I think it's helpful for us to think about. To see God's glory in creation, you need to slow down. We live lives that are so busy and distracted that we're not even seeing God's glory on display in creation. And so take a walk. Don't put headphones in. Just listen to the sounds around you. Look at the sights around you. Smell the smells around you. Touch. Just sense and experience a sliver of God's glory, which is his creation. This whole basic sense, this this revelation, God revealing himself through nature, is what theologians call general revelation. As in, this is how God has revealed himself generally to all humanity, for all of us to see. And this leaves all of us without excuse. That's what Paul would write uh, later in his letter to the Romans, that we, all of humanity, we are to see creation and behold the creator. We are to look at the art that is the world around us, and we are to say, wow, who made that? But we see that that, too, is not the end of the story. God doesn't only reveal himself generally. He also reveals himself specifically, or what theologians call special revelation. And this is what the second section, and therefore our section point uh, of Psalm 19, as we work through it, will be. And this is our second point. God's glory is disclosed in his perfect revelation. God's glory is disclosed in his perfect revelation. We see this section in verses 7 to 11, and it's packed full of descriptions of God's revealed will, or God's perfect revelation, how God has revealed himself specifically and specially. God has not just created the world and hoped for the best that we would figure things out. He has revealed himself through his word. And not in the, the, the voice, the, the actual voice, but still sort of uh, ethereal voice that we think of that is proclaimed and declared in his creation. This is actual language, tangible revelation. And interestingly, look at how, how David describes God. Maybe you noticed it because I changed how I was saying it. In the first section of general revelation, David uses the generic word for God. Right? He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So that's in that first section. But when he gets to God's direct and special revelation, which is his word, we see in our Bibles, likely, the word LORD in all caps. Whenever you see the word LORD in all caps, as you read through the Old Testament, that is the Hebrew name, Yahweh, which is God's revealed name, how he revealed himself to his people. And in that name, was his, his, it's his covenant personal name. And so with that name comes so much Meaning, there's, there's a lot of weight that comes behind that. Not because it's just the name of the Almighty God, but because in that name comes, again, if you were hearing the name Yahweh, you'd be thinking of all the promises that God has made throughout time. It's his personal covenant name. And so when we go from general revelation and we get here into special revelation, the name of God changes. It becomes personal because it's the name that God revealed for himself. And so David goes into great detail. He uses a a number of different statements that are all structurally the same. uh, And you'll kind of look through and and you'll see there's a lot of redundancy. But it's like, and I've used this metaphor many times before, it's like when you turn a diamond. It's one diamond, but you turn it from different lenses, uh, from different views, and you can see the different facets. Or when you watch a movie that, that shows the same story filmed from different perspectives. That's sort of what David is doing here. He's looking at God's word, God's revealed will, through a bunch of different lenses. 
And he describes it in different ways. You see, the first one starts. It sort of sets the stage for the whole thing. It says, the law of Yahweh is perfect. Now, this law, when we see the word law, it's not just a list of do this, don't do that. The word that he's talking about here is the Torah, which we could talk about. Those are the first five books of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote. Uh, But it's not even only that, as if that wasn't enough. It's not only that. Uh, You may recall when we started this journey, this would be really working on your memory here, back last summer as we went into Psalm 1, we talked about the law of Yahweh, the law of the Lord. And what did we encounter when we thought about that as we considered what, what should be our delight, what we need to be meditating on day and night, is that the law, again, wasn't a list of do this, don't do that. It wasn't just a description of the Ten Commandments. It wasn't just a description of the first five books of the Old Testament. We said we could kind of say this word law was synonymous for instruction. And so when we encounter this uh, word in verse 7, we could read it as the instruction of Yahweh is perfect. The instruction of Yahweh is perfect. It is reviving to the soul. And so the word of God, God's revealed will, the way he has revealed himself, breathes life into us. It is necessary. It is reviving to the soul. It is perfect. And it's why we at Heritage Grace Church need to be a word-driven church. We'd be crazy not to. The God of the universe has given us his word. What fools we would be to try to let pragmatism or other things influence the way that we are driven. God has given us his word. And so what David is talking about here is is the Torah. He's talking about God's instruction, God's revealed will, his word. And although David wasn't working with the same Bible that we have today, because we are at a different place in history than David, this is the Bible for us. When we're looking at this section of verses, this is what we're talking about. God's special revelation, his very word, his revealed will, his instruction to us. God's perfect word is reviving to the soul. So David doesn't leave it at only half a verse. He, he goes on. He looks at those various facets, those different viewpoints over the following verses. We'll kind of explain as we go, but I would encourage you to study this this week. We, we won't get into it in, in full depth here. We see the law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving to the soul. And then the testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony. This word kind of is evocative of of the truth that God has attested about himself. Again, this is a covenant word, a word that's used. The testimony of the Lord are the words that, that is used elsewhere in the Bible to explain when God is making a covenant with his people. And it says, what, what about this testimony? What about this, this truth that God has attested about himself? Well, it, it makes wise the simple. Who are the simple? Us. Okay, it makes wise the simple. Simple human minds. We can't comprehend God in all his glory, but his testimony makes wise the simple. In God's word, there is wisdom. And we see, he goes on, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. These Words indicate the precision, the authority that God uses to address us. And it says that that these words give joy to our heart. They enlighten our eyes. Again, this is giving us more facets. Our view should be growing of the power of God's word. And we see verse 9. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. Now, again, typically in the Bible when we see the word fear, we're not talking about terror or fright. But this section here, there's a little bit of a shift in language. Because first we're talking about God's word. Now we're talking about the response to God's word. It emphasizes how we should rightly respond 
when Yahweh reveals himself, and that is with reverence, fear and reverence. And then finally it says, the rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. You may have a footnote in your Bibles, or it may be translated differently depending what version of the Bible you're working with here, uh, that describes it as something like just decrees. God's just decrees. And God's righteous decrees are right forever. There is no error. There is no fault. There is no injustice in them. God's word is true. So I would encourage you again, ponder over those this week. Take one verse a day and just meditate on what, the, what David is saying, what the truths that are proclaimed, and, and what the implications are for our lives. Let those truths ignite the flame in you, light a fire in your bones for God's word. And if you are here and you don't know that amazing truth, I would encourage you to let God speak for himself. Read his word. Examine these claims. Are they true? Is it really perfect? Those are good questions to ask and questions that we're not afraid of asking. And so take God's own word for it. But maybe you're here and, and you do know these truths. You know that you need to be reading the Bible, but you don't feel like it actually revives your soul. And so you neglect it. But I think the missing piece here is not just an, an intellectual grip of that. It's because we miss the glory. We are trying to intellectualize God's revelation when according to the Bible itself, it says God has revealed himself so that we might know him more. And this requires action. You have to look at it. You have to read it. And if we're not, we're, we're failing to see the joy that is offered to us. How it is reviving to the soul. It is enlightening to the mind. It is rejoicing the heart. But I want to encourage you here. This isn't just a tick box that you need to tick every day as you're doing your daily Bible reading. Because you won't last long doing it that way. Because I want to encourage you with this. You don't only have to behave. You need to behold. And you'll realize that as you behold God's glory, that beholding is a lot better than behaving. Beholding is a lot better than behaving because it is good for you. It is good for you that the God of the universe, the same God who made the sun and 200 billion trillion, that's according to astronomy.com, uh, stars, has revealed himself not just generally to you, he has given you his very word. And he gave it to you so that you would know him more. And so it takes some plotting, it takes some work, but look for him there and find him. So I appeal to you, seek out God in his word. See how it does revive your soul. Experience how it rejoices the heart and enlightens, and enlightens the eyes. Talk to one another after the service. Share with one another how God's word does revive your soul. Encourage one another in that. Share with each other your struggles and, and your, your, your challenges with that. And together, behold God in all of his glory in the way that he has revealed himself to us. You'll see that until you behold God for who he is in all of his glory, it'll be impossible or next to impossible to say with David what he says in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. What David is saying here is God's word, God's revelation of himself 
the glory displayed there is more valuable than all the riches of the world, all the pleasures that could be purchased with those riches. We just sang those words. We said, I'll trade my treasure, all my rewards. Jesus, to know you, to know you more. That's, that's the proclamation. That's, that's the heart that we need to grow in. But, but again, we're not going to gain that heart by just willing ourselves to saying, I, yeah, I'll put away those things. I will treasure this. I mean, that is true. There needs to be an intentionality there. But let beholding God in all of his glory transform your heart that you would, that would, what would pour out of you, that, that God's word would be more desirable to you than all the riches of the world. It would be more desirable to you than all the pleasures of the world. And consider in your own life, is God's word more desirable to you than a $50 million lottery sweepstake? Behold the glory of God and it will be. Verse 11 shows us, too, that God's word doesn't only, as if it wasn't enough, doesn't only reveal truths about God. It's also a mirror and revelation of who we are. Verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So two statements. One, at least in part, we've considered with how David has made pretty clear it's good to consider God's word. Right? It's good for you. There's a reward for beholding God in his word. The other sort of feels like this like pothole that you find in the spring on our Ontario roads that you, you've hit this pothole of what has been a massive road, but so far a smooth road down Psalm 19. Right? Psalm 19 is like, wow, the heavens declare the glory of God. God's word is really good. Ba-boom. By them your servant is warned. But it's a good pothole. Causes us to pause and reflect on, on what's going on. We can't miss this. This is a key to Psalm 19. That the revelation of who we are in light of God's immense glory displayed in creation through God's immense glory displayed in his word leads us to the kind of life that David models here. The kind of life that we must live in light of God's glory. Remember the big idea from Psalm 19? Beholding the glory of God results in God glorifying godliness. This is where we turn now in verses 12 to 14, our third and final section. God's glory displayed elicits humble confession. God's glory displayed elicits humble confession. It is only by beholding God for who he is that we could be brought to that level of self-awareness, that level of conviction that David expresses here, verses 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent, from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, the beholding God's glory in creation, seeing how, how big God is, and implicitly at least how small we are, that, that's what's accomplished for David here. Beholding God through his revealed will, through his word, is how David, God's servant, is warned. And it's how the perfection and revelation of God exposes sin. And this elicits humble confession. It's the only adequate response. How could we not confess? David is convicted under the weight of his sin after beholding God, and it draws out confession. He asks God to declare him innocent from hidden faults of the sins that he either has committed by omission or the sins that he has committed that he thinks are hidden. But if nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, 
which has been created by an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. There, there are no hidden sins from God. And David asks that, that God would keep him, too, from presumptuous sins. These are the sins that are no longer hidden. They are flagrant. To sin presumptuously is knowing what God has said to do or what he has said not to do and then doing it anyway. This is the sin that goes public. We can all think of, of stories in the news, the sins that have gone public where people just don't even care who sees it. They don't even care that God sees it. And it is a sin that presumes forgiveness. The sin that you, when you think you're hidden, do anyway, knowing that God can see you, but knowing that you could ask for forgiveness later. That is presumptuous. So David here is convicted. David confesses. And he does this after reflecting on God's revelation, both generally and specifically through creation, through God's word. And it's a, it's a helpful reminder for us, the conviction of sin and what must result, confession of sin, is the evidence of God's spirit working in us. It's evidence of growing in godliness. To be a Christian is to be growing. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, holiness of heart and life, and love and reverence towards God's word, these are the real proofs of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a soul. Where he is, these marks will be seen. And these marks come from beholding God and letting him change your life. Because we see here that David is keenly aware of God's mercy. God's glory is displayed in, in all of his revelation. And his own characteristics, his own character is a revelation of his glory. And God is merciful. David is resting in the fact that even though God is impossibly glorious to our understanding and our minds, our eyes, and even though we, David falls short of the glory of God as we all do, he knows that God and only God is the one who can declare him blameless, innocent of great transgression. So friends, I want to hold that same invitation to you today, that that is the same hope that we hang our hats on here at HGC. That we could be counted as blameless, innocent of great transgression, even though we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And this is through Jesus Christ. The only Son of God who came as a man, not in the way we would expect, but he came as a humble servant. That Jesus wouldn't be like David who would be convicted as he beholds the glory of God. Jesus is himself the glory of God. God's revelation to man. The word of God becoming flesh, dwelling among his people. This is exactly why John, the Apostle John, describes Jesus as the word in John chapter 1. The word was there at the beginning. Jesus is God. All things were made through him. And so the glory of God displayed in creation is the glory of Christ. And then in John chapter 1, we eventually come to verse 14, a well-known verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is a progression for us here this morning. 
that we see creation, we see God's written word, and we rest all our hope in the living word. There's general revelation, special revelation, and saving revelation. It is Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, to come and live a sinless life, to in himself be the very glory of God, not falling short, not being guilty of a hidden sin, not being guilty of presumptuous sins, but perfect in every way as God's word is perfect. And yet, even in his perfection, he would willingly go to the cross to die a horrific death for the sins of us, his rebellious creation. But he did this because he was motivated by love. That's what pours out of the heart of Christ for you. It's his kindness that took him to the cross for you. He died so that you might live. And the call for us today is to behold Christ, to see him in all of his glory, to let his kindness lead us to repentance, that we would turn to him, turning away from our sin and trusting in Christ alone for salvation, that we would come humbly confessing it, all that sin, all that we bring, that we would make a profession of our faith and trust in him alone. If you are here this morning and you have never heard this or never responded in this way, do it today. Humbly confess your sin and trust in Jesus. Find rest in him. You can know the peace of being blameless, the peace of of being at peace with God who we have wronged because of our sin. You can be counted as innocent of great transgression, not because you got your act together, not because you were good enough, not because your grip on Jesus was tight enough, but because Jesus is strong enough. Jesus is perfect enough to save you. And that hope is sure because Jesus didn't stay dead when he died for the sins of the world. He defeated death itself. He demonstrated that God's perfect wrath against sin was satisfied. This is the gospel, that we could rest in that same hope. This is the good news for each and every one of us today. Certainly for you, if you don't know this truth, but also for all of us, brothers and sisters, we don't graduate from the gospel. We don't graduate from needing to to behold Christ in all of his glory. Don't leave here today without beholding God of how he's revealed himself in his word. And don't leave here today without beholding the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you. He's at the cross where truth and mercy met. We see that Psalm 19 closes where it, like it began. Remember in verses 1 and 2, God's glory is pouring out through the sky, through the heavens, through the day, through the night. And Psalm 19 ends with a prayer of David that, that what would pour out of him, the words of his mouth, the meditation of his heart, that what would pour out of him would be pleasing to God, that it would be God glorifying. So again, that's the bookend that we see in Psalm 19, the bookend that we see in our big idea and the bookend that, that, that we need to wrestle with. That it starts with God's glory and it must end in a God-glorifying life. Look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. God is our rock. He is our sure foundation. He is our redeemer. 
What a word, especially if you've been uh, with us for any length of time. We just went through the book of Ruth, Redeemer language saturating the whole thing. That amazing sacrificial love of redemption. He is our rock and our redeemer. He is strong and he is our friend. He created universes that James Webb Telescope knows nothing about. uh, The galaxies that are just impossibly far out of reach. And he knows you by name. And he sent his own son to die for you. And so as we behold his glory, the, the prayer, the response that must be drawn out of us is not only conviction of sin. It's at least that. But it's not only conviction of sin. It's also confession of sin. Don't stop at conviction. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive. And don't even stop there. Have this prayer that David prays in verse 14 be your prayer. That as you behold the glory of God, your life would be transformed. That you would grow in God-glorifying godliness. The psalm begins with God's glory and it ends with a God-glorifying life. This is what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Saying by beholding Christ, we are becoming more and more transformed from that one degree of glory to another, into more and more into the image of Christ. And it's beholding God's glorious creation. It's, it's by beholding God's glorious revelation of himself through the written word and the living word, which is Jesus Christ, that we have hope today. Let's pray. O God, our Father and King, we thank you that you who are beyond what our little brains can comprehend, care about us, you love us, and you hear us. And so we do ask, Lord, that you would help us to behold you as we look to your creation. We ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through your word, that we would behold you and know you there. We thank you for the gift of your son, the revelation of the the good news and, and hope that we can have today, that because he, the sinless savior, died, our sinful souls could be counted as free. Thank you for the gospel that saves and the gospel that transforms. And so we ask that you would transform us from one degree of glory to another, more and more into the image of Christ, that the words of our mouths, the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, that they would be glorifying to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Jesus, the name above all names, amen.